Welcome to Sessions G. Today is episode four. It is our second intuitive session and we have a very special guest with us today. It is such a pleasure to have Alexi on and I'm going to let him introduce himself. Welcome. Hi, how are you doing, Gabriella? Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for having me on your program. And um, so my name is Alexi Helliger, and I am, you know, a Afro-Caribbean immigrant uh, to Canada. And so I've lived here for 20 years, and I came to Canada for a relationship, for love. And um, it's been very successful, even though me and my partner don't live together anymore. We're still really close. We're, we're friends, we're family, um, we're lovers. And so, you know, it's been a really wonderful journey uh, coming, you know, to Canada as an immigrant and now being a citizen. I'm also, um, you know, just, you know, some of the things that are defining who I am. I do philosophy. Um, I have a degree in philosophy and mathematics. And I also love uh, creative endeavors, art, poetry, and um, and uh, also uh, relationship. You know, you know, learning more about relationships and how we can have better relationships. And then also spirituality, which to me means, you know, how do we conduct ourselves with the understanding that we're all one. And so we may not always be totally present to that understanding, but in the back of our minds and sometimes explicitly, how will we you know, manage our behavior and make decisions uh, based on the fact that at the very base, at the base reality of our existence is one existence, everything connected, everything one, one awareness, one consciousness with only the appearance of separateness. So to me, that's the whole concept of spirituality is that question of unity of oneness and what we should do ethically and morally as we um, begin that journey of understanding of the spiritual path. Oh man, thank you. I, my, my smile is so wide. That was such an awesome introduction. And uh, I learned a few new things, and I'm 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 actually really um, hoping that at some point we're going to get to unpack the um, the the last bit of what you've been talking about. But um, I'd like to give you that opportunity to uh, get started with uh, something that you intuitively feel, uh, you know, is a nice direction to go in. Yeah, well, one of the things that's been really, I think, a big issue recently in my thought my thoughts has been the whole idea of same-sex eroticism within the spiritual community. Mm, okay. So it's a really, you know, big subject, a big topic, I think. And the reason why it's really a difficult topic is because it deals with sacral energy. Mm -hmm. And sacral energy is um, one of the most powerful energetic centers. They're all powerful, but sacred energy is one of the most powerful, one of the most explosive energies. And because it deals with um, a lot of triggers that we have around shame and disgust mm. and fear and power, it really 
it really activates a lot of different things in our energetic bodies. Mm-hmm. And so the other the positive thing about the sacral energy is that it's very creative and also, of course, very destructive. Wherever there is creation, there is destruction, right? And so because of the creative aspect of it and the destructiveness of it, it tends to be very regulated by the powers that be, whether they're government or religious, Mm. spiritual, if you want, and also individuals, you know, especially in our modern age, right? Now, I think that non-human species have, they do better with it um, because they don't have as many conceptual structures mm. or ideas or ideologies around their sacral <laughs> and every animal that lives from a bacteria or virus to a human being has these energetic centers right and so we as human beings we tend to conceptualize a lot around that particular energy center you know as well as we do with all yep. of them but that one in particular gets a lot of conceptualization and i think it's because of its creative aspect it's very powerfully creative and we as human beings our i think defining attribute is our ability to step into the role of divine creation much more so than say other animals and other objects in our universe you know we are we are you know as they would say made in the image of god and god is the creator of the universe we are the image of the creator of the universe And sacral is very much tied up to that. So having said that, what we tend to have in, I feel in the spiritual community, and it's basically a consequence of what's happening in the community at large, Mm -hmm. is all these structures and limitations and stigmas around the sacral. And it happens in all different permutations of relationships, whether it's man and woman or same sex or people who are transitioning gender and sexuality, in all different permutations, these things arise because really it's part of us processing the energy that's in our broader community. You know, we're all one after all, right? So it's not that we're gonna go into spiritual communities and leave all that behind (laughs) all that stuff comes with us right Right. and then because we're coming with to the conversation in a spiritual way an awareness of the oneness then i feel that we have the opportunity to process that um, experience of the sacral um, in new ways that can help us heal our communities you know, we talk a lot about healing the earth, mm-hmm. the environment, climate change. That is not going to happen unless we also heal the sacral. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Can we rewind for a second? I mean, this is all great. Um, so you started off saying you said um, same sex eroticism in the spiritual community. Did I hear that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Okay. I, I just wanted to make sure that I, I got that right the first time. Okay. So so this is something that you've been thinking about a lot lately. 
Yeah. Okay. And are you, so when you say same sex eroticism and can we try and, and um, unpack just the, what, what uh, the meaning is behind just that uh, sentence for you, just so I understand what you're saying. Um, is that um, a, a way of saying that there, there is, um that present in the sexual community uh pardon me in the uh spiritual community or are are we just referring to that particular aspect of the spiritual community okay um yeah it's a good question so what i think is that you know same sex of autism which would be you know between members of the same sex mm -hmm. so male to male or male identified to male identified, female identified to female identified, um, and eroticism being, it's 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 sexual, it's genital, mm -hmm. it's pleasure seeking, right? It is looking for all the different creative avenues and expressions that come with a sexual communion between members of the same sex. Mm -hmm. So what we're speaking on then is uh, it is uh, the presence of that in the spiritual community and, and how it sort of manifests or has manifested in the spiritual community, what it has looked like, um, wh where it might need to shift towards. Is, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. And also what we, because we're coming at this subject from a spiritual perspective, right? Or from a, with a spiritual intention, mm -hmm. um, how we can transform the, this, the attitudes of society at large to, with respect to same-sex eroticism in that it becomes healthier and it is more creative and it unlocks um, potential and satisfaction and joy in the communities that you know there are you know experiencing that in that we are coming from a baseline community let's say the secular the non-spiritually aware community mm. where same-sex eroticism despite all the progress we've made uh, for, in civil rights for lgbtq um, people still is huge amounts of stigma huge amounts of control huge amounts of um shame in that area mm. and i feel that it negatively impacts um all different expressions of sexuality and it actually negatively impacts all that we're trying to do to heal our community and our world from right from climate change to um to energy use to how we treat other species everything so when we look at it holistically, say all these different energies are really connected and are basically vibrations in one energetic field or one field of awareness, we know we just can't, you know, oh, we're gonna focus on cleaning up the oceans and everything's gonna be okay. Mm. We're gonna stop the destruction of the rainforest, but we're gonna, not gonna deal with same-sex eroticism, right. which is an important part of the erotic experience of all humans, mm. whether they identify as LGBTQ or queer. Mm -hmm. So that is something that is not a topic of conversation really within the spiritual community. Oh, yeah. 
And what I tend to see is that the spiritual community kind of devolves into party scene. Oh, we're going to have, you know, non-alcoholic partying. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to say without stimulants or drugs because those are there. But, you know, non-alcoholic raves and parties. And really, they're about getting people to hook up, but opposite sex. And all the stigma and all of the shame and all the other negative aspects around same-sex autism come in for, come into the community with actually no attention to trying to heal it. Because really, hey, you know, it's going to ruin my vibe in me trying to get laid. Mm -hmm. So I think that if we're going to be really serious, you know, people who are really serious about, we want to heal our world, our communities and societies, they have to kind of like say, you know what, this may not be my thing, but I have to pay attention to it. I have to try to help facilitate the healing of it. And it may even mean having to step out of our comfort zones around this topic and around even hands-on experience of this type of um, communion. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? I, I just have to say, I, so I'm, I'm totally with you so far. Um, it, it's, uh, it's very interesting to me, one, that this is something that you are actively thinking about that has occurred to you at some point, and you, know, you then spent time thinking about it some more. And then, you know, on the other end of this conversation, there's me and and I noticed, you know, this has actually never occurred to me um, to really think about or look at, despite, you know, personally having, you know, I consider myself to be pansexual if I need to label myself. Um, And, you know, in in many, many occasions, you know, those sober parties or just in the spiritual community in general, <clears throat> in, in hindsight, I can't say that I necessarily felt um, that uh, there was that uh, active awareness and attentiveness towards healing and, and uh, you know, integrating that into the spiritual community. And it's never occurred to me to... Um, revisit that and examine that from this perspective i've i think that uh, you know and i'm sort of trying to put myself back in those past moments i think that at the time i figured this is just the way it is and these are you know some sort of unspoken rules of uh, what uh, communities and and you know society and, and what is okay and isn't okay um so I, I, I figured it's just what it is and, and there's no changing that. And so to hear you bring this up and, and speak on this from this perspective of, hey, this is something that, you know, we, we need to pay greater attention to and, and talk about and, and, you know, bring to our sort of uh, surface level awareness. It's just, it, it's amazing. I, so I, I have to ask, um, you know, when did you start thinking about this and, and looking at this? Uh, good question. So, you know, since, you know, you and I you know, last talked back in 2015, mm-hmm. I've been in, you know, a relationship that really kind of like <clears throat> highlighted a lot of this, like made it extreme to high relief, right, for me mm-hmm. in particular. You know, when I came into 
the conscious community, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, my idea was that, you know, this was usually a lot of interesting people that, um, you know, I needed to, you know, take an intellectual perspective that I had about consciousness mm -hmm. and awareness and attention and bring it into a more embodied um, state. You know, it was to bring it through my energetic body right. rather than just have ideas or theories, right? And then in the course of that, I felt a very strong connection to one person in particular. And in the course of the farrowing uh, of that relationship, um, it just became extremely clear that we, you know, being on the vanguard of trying to, you know, change society for the better, mm -hmm. right? That we had a lot of work to do in this area. You know, that this is something that, and, and, I, and I understand why it's so difficult, but it's something that we really have to be, I think, more above board, more explicit above the table about that. And the solutions to it, I think, has to come from everyone in the community. It can't just come from people in the community who identify as, you know, mm. LGBT, LGBTQ and, and, or, and uh, a queer. Mm which would include, I think the queer label would include pansexuals, yeah. right? It has to be something that's being embraced by people who see themselves as heterosexual mm -hmm. uh, or straight identified, not queer, but yet spiritual. And they have to be a part of the erotic solution, I would call it. In other words, they have to open themselves up to, to the possibility for themselves to have this kind of communion and it's not for just mere pleasure seeking. I think when we do, you know, I think, you know, sex for pleasure is great. It's actually one of the sacraments, right? Mm. But it can't be the only sacrament. You know, sex for the satisfaction of our preferences and our fetishes and our desires cannot be the only sacrament that's worthwhile. You know, so I think, and I think that the ancient peoples, we call them pagan people. Mm um had a had the right idea because they would have all these different types of expressions within their celebrations and their sacraments right? right and we now i think because of the way our societies have evolved um have this huge deficit and this oppression around these things that we really need to look at and revisit and to take like really clear steps within the community to transform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder if uh, perhaps part uh, part of the reason why we don't, uh, whether it's in the spiritual community or other communities, or you know, in the human community at large, part of the reason why we don't uh, pay as much attention to the kinds of uh, parts of our community that need our attention is because we we either don't necessarily identify with that problem itself or or we're we're afraid that if we we do pay attention to it then we will be looked at what you know will be labeled as part of uh, you know the the part of that community that is is you know looking for a solution or, or needs, uh, needs a solution to that problem. Does that make sense? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the biggest barriers I think to progress is that people don't want to be associated with stigmatized communities. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and the interesting yeah. thing is, and, and this is sort of to tie it back to what you were saying in, in your introduction, it, um, for a community like the spiritual community, um, where, you know, supposedly, um, the intention is to honor that, uh, perspective of oneness, uh, you know, you would think that what follows pretty immediately after that is that, um, you know, any part of our community that needs addressing, that needs healing, that needs attention is a part of who we are. And there is no separation between us as individuals in that community and that part of our community that, you know, is either um, represented or expressed or embodied by other individuals. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so you would think that that would, you know, that would be very sort of natural in, in a community like the spiritual community. And, and, yeah. and it's not. So it's really like, I think that that's such a, a, a beautiful thing to be aware of because it, uh, it won, it, it, gives us uh, an opportunity for anyone that sort of identifies as part of a spiritual community or as spiritual um, to humble ourselves and to remember that the, this process is an ongoing process and it's a journey and there's still a lot of learning um, that is available to us. And, and, you know, just because we, we've come to this conclusion that, you know, we are spiritual and we are now taking these steps every day in our lives to, um, you know, feel connected and, and do all these lovely things doesn't mean that, um, you know, we, we're already there. <laughs> There's still a lot yeah. of work for us to do. So it, it's very, yes. very humbling. Yeah. You know, um, one of the areas which to me, this comes to high relief is in the practice of Tantra. Hmm. Yeah. And so in the tantric practices from the workshops that I've, I've attended, they were very focused on very traditional, uh, conventional approaches to sexuality, mm -hmm. even though, you know, the overarching um, intention of Tantra is for us to connect erotically to the whole world, <laughs> you know, um, it becomes very much about the ability for men to retain semen, to pleasure a woman. They talk about the 15 different ways of pleasure centers of the woman. The man only has apparently one, and he has to keep that under control. So it becomes kind of like a competition between men. Can I hold, can I hold everything back long enough, you know, or indefinitely, you know, it becomes a competition. Mm -hmm. And we lose sight of the, the relationship, the connection. And so Tantra to me, so when I asked, um, you know, one of the um, facilitators of a Tantric workshop, well, what happened to all of the knowledge around male sexuality and male eroticism? You know, there was like a wave of the hand. Well, you know, it is lost. It was not in the tradition. And so I'm like, well, why is that? Why is this gone? You know? Mm -hmm. And they really, there was no answer really given. There was no curiosity around why it was gone. Um, it was just gone for them. And so they just want to go back and focus on, you know, guys pleasuring women, right. you know, 
there was an aspect where they said, you know, a woman, you know, to practice her tantric abilities should practice with other women. You know, you can do mutual yoni massages, right? Mm. But there was no mention of men practicing with other men. Right. Like zero, like none. Mm. <laughs> and when it was brought up, everybody got kind of uncomfortable, right? Mm. So it just shows me it's, it's this huge perception awareness gap. And when you even bring it up, you know, most people kind of run in the opposite direction. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to to see, like, for example, I, I pretty recently learned uh, that the, the that sort of famous passage from the Bible um, about, uh, you know, man shall not lay with man or something along those lines. Are you familiar with it? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, very much. So. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I one day sat down and thought, you know, why don't I like actually try and figure out what the translation, uh, the actual translation was, or what is this translated from and that kind of thing. So uh, I, I came across all these various uh, sort of theories online um, that it was translated from uh, ancient Greek, I think, or, or something along those lines. And uh, when you go back and, and look at the original language, that's particular sentence actually uh, said something along the lines of man shall not lay with young man um, or young boy uh, because that that and and that you know implies that that uh, that passage and and as well in the context that it was in was referring to um, adults um, you know engaging in sexual activities with children and that's what that yeah. yeah so so i i just you know that that made me think oh okay well that's very interesting you know it's it's very sad and unfortunate that that was um translated in such a way that now there's an entirely different interpretation but as a result of that we now you know in the collective um consciousness or, or the collective sort of energetic impression um, you know, we, we've taken on this belief that, that, that it is inherently wrong in, in some way. Mm -hmm. And that has, you know, in many ways infiltrated, um, the, the energetic relationship with, uh, same sex eroticism for many, many people. And I think for probably a, a pretty big chunk of the human, um, family. Yeah. So I, yeah. just to tie that back into what, uh, we were just talking about, I, I think uh, part of what's uh, challenging in, in really addressing this and changing this is that um, there, there, is, there is a belief in our sort of energetic collective that it is wrong. And it is very difficult for any individual in that collective to break out of that. Yeah, that's the kind of the base, the background baseline mm. that really, when, when we enter into a, a spiritual community or consciousness community, that's our our baseline background that we're coming from, mm -hmm. right? Um, I wanted to mention a couple of things that you said yeah. about that particular passage. You know, whenever we try to look at contemporary morality and ethics and compare them to historical or ancient practices, it's very, very fraught. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because those people back then had very different ideas about what was right and what was wrong than maybe what we would have today. Right. So back then, for instance, 
what we would consider as child sex mm. was okay for most of those communities. Right. You know, so children were fair game sexually. Mm. And we would not consider that to be the case today, right? Mm. Also, um, slavery, for instance, was okay. Mm. And certain kinds of eroticisms were okay and others were not even thought about or were not important. You know, for instance, you know, the erotic, the erotic lives of women was, was not considered. Mm. But we know that women did have erotic lives back then. Um, we have found that information. We know that there were harems back then where a king or a nobleman would have many wives or concubines. And, you know, what were they all doing in those harems, you know, sequestered, you know? Mm. You know certainly relationships would, would develop. It's only human, right? Right. You know, so there were all kinds of different kinds of arrangements. Like slavery was okay. I think I may have said mm -hmm. that already. Yeah. Uh, whereas today, slavery is not okay, right? Mm. So when we're trying to compare what was okay then to what's okay now, you know, you really, it doesn't, morality and ethics it does, does not stand still in time. And so we're trying to shoehorn a, a completely different cultural and social aesthetic into a modern one, and it usually is going to be unworkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I wanted to say that. And then um, <clears throat> what we see happening today is that people are borrowing and looking at these kind of antiquated notions and bringing them forward. I don't want to dismiss, though, the knowledge of, of ancient peoples. You know, I think that it's important to respect and honor what they did in their time, mm -hmm. but also to, to accept the responsibility of creating something that is um, creative and beautiful and expressive and powerful in our time, mm -hmm. right? And so if you want to just, you know, step in the same river twice, the universe does not allow that to happen. And that's what I think a lot of conservative notions and thoughts and stigmas tend to try to do, right? They try to freeze morality to some kind of, you know, pattern or modality that existed a thousand, two thousand years ago and say it's still applicable today when it no longer is. In fact, these different kinds of approaches that were evolved, they, they served particular challenges and cultural issues of their day that we don't have today, right? Wow. And today we have an issue of overcrowding. Back then, if you were, most people were agrarian, they worked in farms and every, like Egyptian, Greek, Roman, on through the Middle Ages, people worked on farms. And when you work on a farm, you need lots of kids. Mm -hmm. And people fought a lot over territory so they could have that territory to farm. And when you're gonna fight wars, to protect territory, you need kids because a lot of those kids would get killed, not just in regular childbirth and disease, but also in, in conflict and warfare. Right. So the necessity to have a lot of children was huge back then, right? Compared to today where infant mortality is down, um, disease overall has, you know, allowed populations to grow, and we're not as warlike as we were back then defending territory. So when you say to 
an elder back then who had all these concerns about preserving their community and, you know, and men were maybe engaging in sexual activity with other men, that was not helpful for them. They felt like, okay, that guy should really be, be with a woman, right. you know, and he should really be trying to raise up more kids because we need that kid to produce, you know, um, agriculture and we may need them to fight wars, right? And we've lost half our kids last year to some plague, <laughs> you know? Yep. So our yep. community really, really needs to have these kids. So you can't be messing around, you know, into a same-sex union if we need you to be producing children. Right. Every ounce of um, sacral was was being channeled into the root, right. into producing more offspring. So you can secure the community. And so today we don't have that issue as much, right? But we're carrying forward those solutions as if we need them today, mm. you know? And so um, it's something to really think about. You know, with respect to children, you know, mortality back then, it happened like when you were in your 30s. Most people didn't live past 30, right? right? And so you needed to have people come online sexually as soon as possible. So if, it, if they became sexually mature at 13, so be it. You got married and off you went, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so today that would be considered not appropriate, right? So um, <clears throat> we have to look at all these different things in an intelligent kind of way. As the elders back then looked at their situation, and we need to come up with solutions that modern technology, modern medicine has given us so many more degrees of freedom mm. that we don't have to necessarily rely on those old solutions. And in fact, some of those old solutions are actually counterproductive. It's what's killing our environment. It's what's killing our planet, right? Mm. And our societies. Because we're trying to shoehorn solutions that worked for cultures back then that are no longer applicable. Yeah. That is so well said. So well said. So, so in your 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 process of, of thinking about this, have you have you come across any solutions? Have you thought of any solutions? Yes, I have actually. First of all, yeah. First of all, we need to embrace discomfort. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever we're dealing with difficult issues like tribalism, which we now call racism, right, right. or heterosexism which we call homophobia, mm. right? Um, or any other of the, or the economic and social challenges, it's always going to make people feel uncomfortable. Right. It's because, especially with the sacral, which is so close to root and solar plexus, it's right between the two of them, right? right. It's going to engender a lot of anxiety and it's gonna engender resistance to learning. Right, yeah. because the sacral is connected to where we feel safe, which is the root, and the solar plexus where we're able to learn and take in new information. Mm. And when the sacral is blocked, it becomes hard for us to feel safe. Anxiety levels go up, or it becomes hard for us to take in new information. So we need to be aware of that, and realize that when we're dealing with sacral energy, there's going to be that uncomfortable feeling. Mm. There's going to be sometimes anxiety. There's sometimes going to be that pit of your stomach, fear. 
and resistance and wanting to put up a wall or a boundary to protect yourself, right? right. And which is and not here anymore. I don't want to hear any more about this. I want to block this out. So blocks to learning and integrating information. So we have to be aware that's going to happen and be willing to accept it. Not just say, oh, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen and I accept it, but really genuinely accept it. Say, I feel threatened. I feel uncomfortable. I feel triggered. I feel challenged, but I'm going to allow myself that space to be that. But what I've noticed is that a lot of people coming into the consciousness community, they bring a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. to baseline. Right. You know, they're very sensitive people. They're very empath empathic people. And so they're picking up a lot of the, 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 the vibrations of the broader society are part of, right? Right. And, and, and so they're coming to it not feeling safe to begin with. They're coming to it with a host of what you would call personality disorders mm -hmm. and challenges, right? Right. And so asking them, they're trying to heal just that. You know, they have all kinds of trauma that belongs to them. And actually, they're feeling trauma that belongs to other people. So asking for them to enter into this place of discomfort, I think is a big ask. Yeah. Right? Um, I think it's very threatening. It's very challenging. But so the next step is, yes, so we want to embrace discomfort, but we must do so with the awareness that people are already feeling traumatized and uncomfortable. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And so it's really difficult to get them to accept more of that, more of the same, right? Right. So I think it requires everyone it requires all hands on deck to be aware that this exists and to see the value, to embrace the value of addressing it themselves. Just like, you know, you heard the whole thing about, you know, Black Lives Matters, right? Right. Black Lives Matter. The solution is not going to come from the Black community, right? The white community is going to have to embrace the solutions as well, right? Right. They're going to have to be a part of the positive change. They're going to have to be, be willing to change institutionalized racism and oppression, even though it may at first not look like it's of interest to them. Right, yeah. Right? So in the spiritual, the spiritual approach, we know that if we improve the lives of everyone, your life, even though you may not be interested in what they're doing or their history or their story, everybody's lives get better. Right, because right. that's what spirituality means. We're connected. If you uplift your brother, then you're uplifted as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so the first step is to be willing to embrace discomfort. And it means opening up your awareness to the fact that this is an issue, and that even though you consider yourself heterosexual and that you have your challenges, maybe hooking up with with people of the opposite sex. Um, and that's very challenging to you, and that's your main agenda, right, right now, that there is something for you to contribute and to learn by opening yourself up to um, same-sex eroticism mm -hmm. and to allowing yourself to let the discomfort around that, the anxiety around that um, be, right? Yeah. 
and the leaders of the community um, have to have have to open up the conversation and say, "Hey, you know, we're having this party, and there might be people who are same-sex attracted, mm-hmm. and we need to welcome them with open arms, with open legs, even though you may not be interested." But see where that where you can go with that, right? See how that may even be an avenue for you to enhance what your agenda for um, opposite sex communion, right? Right, and also form support groups within heterosexual communities to overcome heterosexism, right, or homophobia. Right. right. In other words, and it doesn't happen by just saying, hey, bro, let's do a hug. No, no homo. Mm-hmm. It happens when you say, hey, bro, let's do a hug and let's just see how I'm feeling and how far we can go. Right. Yeah. I just I just want to say um, that is such a beautiful thing to have brought up support groups um, for heterosexism or what we call homophobia. I mean, that the that makes complete sense for people to have support groups and people that they can talk to and, and uh, relate their experiences with in, in terms of what they find challenging or what comes up for them. It like, you know, that that's just something that's never occurred to me. So I just wanted to point out that that's such a beautiful solution. Yeah, because we're going to need that because people are coming into the communities with a whole host of other anxieties, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, we need to be able to open up these spaces where people, where we're having the conversations, because right now we're not even having the conversations. Right. And I think some people feel, I have like one person I know who has absolutely stopped having sex altogether. Right. Because for them, it's like, it's too fraught, you know? And I'm like, okay, fine. If you find a way to totally suppress your sacral, and that might work for you. It's not going to work for everybody. But I actually think it's like Catholic priests, mm-hmm. right? Suppressing the sacral leads to other kinds of, of pathology, right? Not having yeah. an adequate expression of sacral means that you're, you're not really fully embodied. You're not having a full body experience. Mm-hmm. And so it might work. I mean, you know, people have mortified their flesh for millennia but i think we're trying to see what we're seeing in the mortification of the flesh mortification means we're killing off some aspect of the body right Mm. so in the mortification of the flesh the killing off of our sacral we think oh we can do this and not kill off the rest of the planet right (laughs) you know what i'm saying a planet that's engaged very deeply in sexuality Mm. across all species right Right. it's just not going to happen you know, so we ask, well, why do we have a, an insensitive society that is raping and destroying the earth, right? Well, mm-hmm. if you cut off, you know, important energetic centers of your body, you lose the ability to feel. You lose abilities, right? Mm-hmm. To connect and to commune. So we're not having the conversations right now. This is what I've seen. You know, yeah. and the conferences, and whenever the conferences do occur, they immediately become very supercharged, and people they either melt down or they shut down. Right. You know, and then nothing really 
evolves or changes anymore. Everything just gets kind of stuck. Yeah, interesting. I I don't I can't even think of uh, a conversation like the last conversation uh, uh, of the sort that I might have had with uh, anyone in the spiritual community. It's just I, I can't even think of the last time. I, I it's just so interesting that uh, you. I mean, on this particular topic, you've got uh, a lot of experience and insight um, to share. It, it's yeah. very cool. Well, I know it's a big issue. You know, I visit, there's this um, website called Chatterbait. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have not. Chatterbait. Chatterbait. Okay. And what it is, it's uh, it's like, um, it's like you, you're a chat roulette. Yeah, kind of. It's like chat roulette, but for pay. <laughs> Basically, people go on there mostly not always but mostly with the intention of trying to make some money by you know doing perform sexual performances gotcha. in front of their webcam right yeah and so you you open up the site and you see like you know dozens and dozens of people doing various things that are sexual mm-hmm. and you can connect and go into the room and you can interact with the models as they call them and you know whatever Whatever happens, happens, right? right. Um, but what happens is that you go into the ones that are male, male. And this right. is the ones that kind of pique my interest, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of accept that female sexuality is a little bit more fluid. And yep. you say, well, you know, male sexuality is very rigid, right? Mm-hmm. But I go into the male, male ones. And most of the people watching the male cams are other men. Right. And those men are not identified when you look at their profiles, they look at their principal interest as being women, strictly. Right. But yet they're having very sexual conversations with the models and they are acting out very sexually, right? Right. So we know that there is this energy that's there and it's very repressed. Right. And I feel it very strongly because I feel sexual energy very strongly, you know, mm-hmm. um, from other people. I'm very empathetic to it. And so we know this energy is there and it's very repressed and it's and it's and it's not good to have it repressed like that. And it's not good to not deal with it. It's not good for, you know, the relationship that men have with other women. It's one of the, oh, going back to something you said earlier, you said if a man lays with another man, um, you missed an important part of that scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay. If a man lays with another man as he does with a woman. Right. Yeah. It's an That's... abomination. Mm-hmm. And they shall yeah. be both put to death. Right. And the key is that as with another woman, and we see how this same sex stigma is really deeply rooted in misogyny. Yeah, yeah. So if you go to Revelations, there's in Revelations, in the last book of the Bible, there is, um, <clears throat> there is a, a kind of a passage where they're talking about after the kingdom of God is established on earth, right? Okay. And God is going to appoint 144,000 rulers. Right. And they're going to be selected from the men that have never defiled themselves with women. Oh, right. I, right? So yeah. it's actually in that passage, it's constructing. So the Bible is very contradictory. You know, it's kind of, it, it recognizes the necessity of, of heterosexuality, of course, for the purposes of procreation. 
but it's mm-hmm. very anti-sex. It's right. very anti-sacral. So it's, it's, it's not only deprecating sexual contact between same sex, but also saying for men who even have sex with women, they are defiled. Right. Right? But the, the main locus of defilement is the woman. Yeah. And so this is something, this, this psychology, this ideology infects all relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not being talked about in a, in a clear way. You know, most of the people who come to the spiritual community are coming from a Christian or Muslim or even in the Eastern religions, you get a lot of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're coming from these traditions in which female sexuality as much as you want to get it, is considered um, toxic. Right. A defilement, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that we're not going to really solve the, the divine masculine interacting with the divine feminine until we, we, we solve the other aspects of the erotic connection, the other right. permutations, you know? It's, and the one that, and, and I recognize that the female to female one needs attention for sure. Mm-hmm. But the male male one is the one that is, that has the most panic and the most stigma around it. Mm-hmm. And the most fear, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Most the, like uh, hesitation to approach that discomfort. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, so we need to have the conversation. We need to open them up within, in, in a very clear way within the, um, the community. You know, I've been to raves where I embrace another guy and we embrace very lovingly. And other men just came around us and says, I need some of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because they just don't get it. And, you know, but then once they start to get, if, to get into it and they feel it, they go, oh, but I'm not gay. And I'm right. like, well, why is it even coming up? Yeah. You know, why is, it, why is it that any kind of physicality has to be then prefaced with an ideology of being gay or not, mm-hmm. you know? And so it really has to be looked at and really kind of unpacked, I think, very intentionally because it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it's been on my mind a lot and it's, it's been a big part of like sadness for me. As being a part of this community and coming from the community at large. And I feel like a lot of people, a lot of men and women are suffering as a result. And that we can do a lot more to um, to create bridges in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, I think for one, having these conversations is... Uh, certainly a step in that direction i know for me personally this uh this is uh brought awareness um to the the you know this problem um for me i mean up until having this conversation with you a a lot of these things simply did not occur to me so um you know for one i want to say thank you for for bringing this conversation to um, our, our, our space today and also want to say that, hey, you know, this is, um, this is evidence that by bringing these uh, conversations uh, to, 
to the community, it, it uh, does shed light on things and it does bring sort of stir that awareness for people um, because, you know, part of it is just being aware of it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the first step, right? Is it to, to me, but before belief or anything else, just awareness. You know, and then once there's awareness, then we can begin to, you know, pay attention to practices, agreements that we need to put in place to create new realities, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was that was such an amazing uh, conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you, Gabriella. I really am happy that you tapped me today for, you know, for intuitive podcast yeah <laughs> podcasting yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know i'm so felt, glad yeah i really felt hurt today i felt like i got something that i really need to share off in there into the out into the world there and uh, i feel really good so thank you so right. much my pleasure before uh before you go i would love to if you have a few more minutes or so um i would love to ask you about uh, one of your posts that i think is just really really cool i mean they're all very cool but this one particularly it uh it reads duality might be essential yet both exist in a single awareness and then i think underneath that uh, you have written one plus one equals one can you tell me a little bit about that yeah okay yeah i mean ah <sighs> okay so <clears throat> To have the, to have any kind of experience, mm -hmm. right? Even if it's an experience that let's say you lock yourself into a dark room, pitch pitch black, right? And you ask yourself, well, what am I, you know, looking at? Your eyes are open. You're looking into the darkness. What do you see? Right. How have you ever had an experience? And in a sense, you're not really seeing anything. It's pitch black, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but what you do have still is this sense of awareness. Right. So in that pitch black, you know, let's say the room is completely quiet and there's this, actually there are these rooms you can create where the sound is like near zero. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you give it to a near zero room with no sound and pitch black. And if you put people in these rooms for long enough, they actually begin to get very anxious. Right. You become, it's, it's very difficult for some people to stay in this state. But what you're experiencing is like a sensory deprivation. And in that, you're just looking at a pure awareness. There's no content. Mm -hmm. But there's still this sense of me and an environment, a place, space. Right. And right. maybe even the sense of time passing. And that's an essential duality. You know, Einstein said that space-time are the same thing. Of course, right? right? <laughs> I mean, the theory of relativity is really a theory of oneness, right? Right. Energy and matter are the same, right? Yeah. So, we're, so in scientifically, we keep unfolding the oneness more and more. Um, um, it was Werner Heisenberg that said, at the bottom of the cup of science is God. And right. God is oneness, right? Right. So we go into this room. There's no sound. There's no light. It's pitch black. And we have this awareness that we're in a black room. Right. That something is, that we're in this black space and that time is passing. 
And that's an essential duality, right? But it's only occurring within that one awareness. So everybody, every single person who goes into that room can have that one, can have that experience of that awareness of being in a room that's pitch black with no sound. Mm-hmm. And that's a unifying experience. You know, you take someone and you put them, you know, you said, you know, if I'm sitting in the same room as someone else and we're looking out the window, we're still seeing different content. Mm-hmm. When we look at the same scene, from my perspective, it's going to be different from the perspective of the person who's sitting right beside me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we both have an awareness, the content, which is multiple different things, is different, right? So that creates kind of like, I am here, you're there. It's a duality of just location, right? Right. Looking at the same scene and seeing something totally different. But when we both go into that dark room with no sound and no light, we are unified. Mm -hmm. Come together into oneness. Right. So, So, so sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. My oneness right? And their oneness comes together for oneness, one awareness. We're seeing the same thing finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm now picturing, um, I'm now picturing that this room and this experience is one awareness and, um, we are the so so that single awareness is in a very specific location and we are the ones traveling from awareness uh point to awareness point mm-hmm. yes through time and space yes right space yeah yeah that that's that's great because uh that is such an interesting take because that uh that changes um our relationship to um awareness itself that we we are not um, awareness itself. We are, we are something, or we are a, a, our own kind form of awareness, traveling um, across various locations of or points of awareness. Yeah. Well, I would say that we are awareness itself. Yeah. That's, that's our that's our fundamental starting point, right? And the black room, the dark room, with no light and no sound is that unifying place. I mean, we would call that experience of the black room with no light and no sound as being nothing. Mm -hmm. And when we are both in that place together, we are sharing the same awareness. Right, right. In other words, there's no distraction of content. We typically have, you know, I can't see even my my body. It's so black. Can't see my hands. Can't see my gender. I can't see anything about me. I can't see whether I'm white or black or this or that. All the dualities fall away and we're just looking at a dark room. So one of my friends, um, he, you know, going back to the issue of sexuality again. Yeah. He said that, you know, he says, you know, he's straight identified. He's heterosexual. He says, but if he closes his eyes and someone is performing a sexual act on him mm-hmm. and then he opens his eyes and the lights go on, he sees it's a man, he said he suddenly feels uncomfortable. Right. So with the lights off and his eyes closed, there's one awareness and right. of a sensation, it's whatever. He opens up his eyes and he brings in all this new content and all these new meanings. Right. So 
we can strip away all of that by going into the dark room together or singly, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But when you go into that dark room, you and me, we're still, we are in one awareness. One, we're both aware that we're in a room, it's dark, there's no light, there's no sound, and that's it. We're, you know, so there's two, there's two of us, there's you and me mm -hmm. in that room having one awareness. Right. So all, so, when, so all the other things that happen when the lights go on, the sound turns on, all this that happen are all kind of like a play off each other, right. a conversation, a duality. Right. right. But it's only possible because we can go into that room with no light and no sound and have that unified spiritual oneness, that experience of the one awareness. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. one awareness is, is, is true for whether you put myself or a bat or a cat or any other experiencing creature into that room. They're going to see that one. They're going to be, oh, I'm aware, you know, because they're alive. And, oh, I don't see anything. There's nothing here for me to see. There's no sound for me to hear. And right. that's the same awareness for all of us. We don't have to work. Mm -hmm. We don't have to wonder about that. You know, I can see red, and my red might be different from your red. A colorblind person will see that red maybe differently. Mm -hmm. right. But we go into that room, and it all falls away. It's just that one understanding that, hey, I'm not dead, I'm alive, I'm aware, but there's no content for me to play off as a duality to say that there's a difference here or a difference there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. So when yeah. we're when we're out of that room, there's no content for for us to interact with. Um, and uh, but you know, when we are out of that room, because there is so much more to interact with, our awareness interacts with that, and then as a result, we we start, that starts to inform our sense of identity or our experience. Uh, so, in other words, we could walk around and introduce ourselves as, you know, hey, um, I am awareness of, and then list off all of the, you know, the various aspects of, of or the the factors that that uh, make up the specific awareness that is me. Yes, exactly. In other words, how am I processing my awareness right now? What am yeah. I paying attention to? And when you pay attention to that content, you're basically creating dualities. Mm -hmm. You're basically saying, oh, there's me and there's that building over there. Oh, there's me and the table. There's me and the cell phone, right? right. So you're creating a relationship now between yourself and other things that you are aware of in your environment, right? Mm -hmm. But that's only possible because of that underlying oneness and so the one plus one doesn't equal two in other words on the level of pure perception or even of quality you know two people or even two beings like i say a cat and a human in that dark room they're just that one awareness of being in that dark room with no sound mm -hmm. right it's just yeah. them and that oneness experience is the same you don't have to wonder, you know. Now, maybe they, they say that certain animals can see into the infrared. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so maybe they can see the heat of my body. And, right. you know, but I'm saying just looking at it in a, you know, in a very strict way is in the sense that there's no sensory input coming in, mm -hmm. right? All there is is just this awareness of existence. You can't even count time, really. 
because right. time is really in a matter of like keeping counting ticks on a clock. Right. It's not even that. You know, in fact, when you put people in these rooms with sensory deprivation, they quickly lose track of time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You mean they can maybe they can count their heartbeats. You know, they can they can they can start to game the system in certain ways, but time and space kind of really kind of recede into the background, and all you're left with is this sense of, hey, I exist, and there's no content here for me to play off of, for me、mm. to create stories around.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so to tie it back into our conversation earlier,、uh, when we're outside of that room,、uh, you know, we're in, we're we're. Constantly, actively interacting with that content, and each each one of those interactions, we could we could call that a relationship. You know, we could label it a relationship between ourselves as awareness and that content, and、mm-hmm. and that sort of duality. And so then,、um, in the context of you know this、um, this、uh, this. This need that、uh, for attention within our community and in our collective, with reference to、uh, same-sex eroticism, that is one of those、um, relationships of interacting with content、um, that needs addressing. So it's a relationship that we need to look at, and it's a relationship that we need to pay attention to. It's a relationship that we maybe have not been tending to for a while. Right, I, exactly, and I and I want and I, I like the way that you kind of like emphasize the idea of relationship,、mm-hmm. because a lot of the men that I talk to,、um, they tend to talk about things in terms of tools, utility.、Mm-hmm. Right.、They、say, well, how can I use this? You know, or how can I use this energy? Or how can I use this medicine? Right. And right. I'm like, you really don't want to think about it in terms of the use of the medicine. Because, and this is how we think about the planet. Even we're just gonna make use of it and then put it down.、Mm. You know, I'm saying, what you want to really do is enter into relationship with it. Yeah. In other words, knowing that your connection to it goes beyond the any kind of perception of utility. Right. Right. And so, one of the things that I think is, that I think. Heterosexual people have challenges with is that their relationships tend to be utilitarian.、Mm-hmm. So a woman meets a guy: is he going to be a good father? Is he going to make enough money to take care of a family for you know x number of years? You know, you know, he might say, you know, is she, you know, does she, is she hot enough? Is she going to raise my status with other men? Like, you know,、mm. am I going to be able to pass my genes on? So these relationships. Come prepackaged with a whole host of utilities,、mm-hmm. agendas, right? Yeah, which take away from the ability for that couple to have relationship.、Mm-hmm. And so, if you see, for a lot of men, you know, not every, but for a lot of men, if their spouses, you know, is not as maybe youthful or attractive as she was when they first met, they lose interest. Right. Or if you know there's financial difficulty in the household, the wife says, "Well, he's not earning enough. I'm I'm out of here."、Mm-hmm. There's all、yeah. these other things, right? Or he's not taking care of the children, you know, financially. So this marriage is over. So we see these things come back up, and they're thinking, "Oh, for some reason, 
I don't feel turned on anymore. Right. But that's because they went into the relationship with a whole host of agendas and mm-hmm. utilitarian notions. Yeah. Right? And even some women to this day, even though women now have more earning power than a lot of men, mm-hmm. they still go into the relationship thinking, oh, that man must take care of me. Mm-hmm. If that man doesn't earn enough, he's not really a man. Right. He's not really stepping up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we want to step back, I think, from this utility approach and go back into an idea of the relationship. And the relationship really is about discovery. It's about learning. It's about expression, Mm -hmm. right? And then also getting that expression in return, right? It's a a reciprocity of energy mm-hmm. and not just for the sake of like, well, am I getting my needs met? You heard a lot about in relationships speak. Well, you know, he wasn't really meeting my needs or she wasn't really meeting my needs. And I'm like, well, are you so needy? Right. Or is this relationship all about what you can get? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And really it should be about what you can express and what you can feel and what, how you can grow and what you can see, what you can discover, what you can create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, I guess, uh, you know, a way to to start doing that, again, that, that goes right back to uh, awareness being the first step is to start asking ourselves questions like, you know, how am I relating to, uh, you know, whether it's a person or, or an interest, a hobby, an activity, uh, how am I relating to this? Um, am, I, am I looking at it um, as uh, something that is of use to me, or am I looking at it as something that you know I am in a relationship with, a relationship of some kind? And I think that maybe if relationship doesn't uh, work for some people, another way to look at it is, you know, on this planet we have ecosystems, and we could look at ourselves and each part of the planet as an ecosystem on its own. And so each of those interactions with the content, um, those are all ecosystems. So our, our relationship with, you know, either, uh, a series, a set of beliefs or, you know, a, a company like Facebook or a person, all of these interactions, all of this content, um, our interaction with each of these things is an ecosystem on its own. And if we're looking at it as an ecosystem, then we can start asking ourselves questions like, well, what is the health of our ecosystem like, uh, or this ecosystem like right now? What, how's the health doing? Is it, mm-hmm. is it healthy? Is it, is it feeling okay? Is it responsible? Is it sustainable? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? Yeah. And exactly. I like the word sustainable because we ask ourselves, is this something that we can relate to lifelong? Mm-hmm. And we've entered into disposable kind of relationships, right? In other words, you know, if the relationship is not working out, I'm just going to just, you know, end it. I'm going to cut it off, you know. I'm going to walk away. I'm going, you know, we have even in the spiritual community this whole idea of letting go of, of what no longer serves you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. hear that a lot, right? Yeah. And it's all this idea of disposability. Mm-hmm. It's not about having a relationship with something. It's like, well, it no longer serves me, so I'm just going to let it go. Mm-hmm. It's basically putting it in a trash can, 
you know, and that's the whole attitude we have towards the whole planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and just to add to that uh, about, I I feel that it's important to to add to that, uh, you know, in reference to uh, letting go of the things that do not serve us or no longer service and service and all that kind of stuff, um, you know. In the context, say, for example, with a relationship in which, you know, it, it does feel like the current circumstances or the current sort of agreements of that relationship and the dynamics, um, you know, uh, it are calling for some changes that, you know, it, that isn't necessarily synonymous with, you know, um, letting go of the person i think it's important to separate the 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 people from the the relationship or the form that that relationship takes yeah, the practices or the behaviors mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah there was a, um in in the biblical tradition in the christian tradition jesus told a story and he says you know from the law if uh if a woman commits adultery that mm-hmm. her husband will put her away right and he says, and then Jesus goes on to say that it wasn't always like that. He said, it becomes like that because of the hardness of your heart. Right. He said, um, if you even look, he said, at another woman, then you've committed adultery. So he's basically saying that it's not, you know, we tend to think of transgression as the act. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But he was saying it goes beyond the act. It's the imagination of the act even. Right. <laughs> right. And so his you know, followers, disciples, they said, well, if this is the case, because they all know themselves, then who can be saved? They were like, this is ridiculous. You know, well, we've all done the act in our imagination. So who can be saved? It's better probably not to even get married, they said. Right. And Jesus says, well, no, that's not the answer because not everybody can accept it. And he gave some conditions and some descriptions of people who might be able to accept it and those who might not. But his main point was that you just don't put away your wife. That was not the intention. Right. right? To just dispose of somebody because it no longer pleases you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You only do that because you have a heart block. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something going on in your heart that you can't, that you won't deal with. Right. And so when we look at things, letting go of something that no longer serves us, there are certain, there are definitely certain agreements and certain practices that are not helpful and that we can, we should probably let go of, Mm -hmm. right? But the people, the neighbors, the lovers, the friends and the family, there's no letting go of those relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can, we can, you know, uh, we can change, make those changes without letting go of the person. Yes, exactly. And sometimes people aren't ready to let go of unhelpful practices, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes they have to act out those things at a distance. In other words, the boundary has to be set up, right? The wall right. has to be put in place just so that they can have a place where they can do that and people can feel relatively safe. Mm-hmm to be around them, right? But we also have to recognize that the relationship still exists and that that person is still valuable and loved. And when they are ready to be brought home to community, this is the whole idea of forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. The wall comes down and the wall is only temporary. 
So you may notice in some of my posts, I talk about boundaries. Right. And yeah. how people like to, again, in relationships speak these days, people are always talking about healthy boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As if like creating boundaries is at the end. Oh, we have a boundary and now it's all done. It's all fixed. Mm -hmm. But the boundary really is because you are feeling blocked. You're feeling unsafe, mm -hmm. right? And so you put the boundary up and hopefully you put the boundary up. It's a, it's a healthy one in the sense that the energy you put into building the wall or the boundary is going to be worth it. In other words, right. you're going to get something valuable out of it. The sense of safety that you get from putting the wall up and putting energy into it is worthwhile. Right. So a good analogy for that is the wall that Trump wanted to build with Mexico. Right. You know, all the people who were against that wall said it's not worthwhile. We have to build the wall. We have to maintain it. It's going to cost billions of dollars. And most of the people who come into the country illegally come in through ports of entry. They don't cross the border. Yeah. So the wall wasn't worth it. We won't put, right. won't put yeah. all the resources we're going to put into that wall can go to something actually that's going to help people and be better than trying to build this useless wall. Right. So we tend to say, OK, people who are able to establish boundaries and build walls, they're being really healthy when actually they're being really pathological. And they're really just kind of like using the wall to protect themselves or to bypass something that they really should be dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I, I'm very critical whenever I hear people say, oh, healthy boundaries, because they haven't really been clear as to what constitutes a healthy boundary or whether that boundary needs to be built in the first mm -hmm. place. Yeah. Right? Or why are they building the boundary? You know, maybe there's something for them to learn by perhaps not building that boundary mm -hmm. or crossing it. So I made one comment where I say healthy bridges are better than healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. So if you can find a way creatively, this is where creativity comes in, right? And this is where, again, the SQL is good for this. If you can use it, find a way to creatively, because that's what the SQL really does. You know, it helps build these bridges, right? There was a lot of the trade and the reason why people come together across cultures oftentimes are driven by the SQL in many surprising ways. If you can find ways to bridge those boundaries creatively, with the help of others in the community, you might be able to find ways to say, oh, we didn't really need that after all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, huh. that is so beautiful, so beautiful. And and uh, I mean, I, I totally uh, get what you're saying in terms of the way in which uh, boundaries have been used and, and many other things, of course. And I think that's that's part of the, from my perspective, it's part of the phenomenon of, you know, um, when something starts to become part of the mainstream or, or part of the, um, you know, collective conversation or a collective conversation, it, it tends to, uh, like, it, it tends to have this effect where people start to take it on and, and uh, make it a part of their own lives. and. Mm -hmm. and while they're integrating it they're you know often still trying to figure out um 
you know, how this fits into their lives and how to use it. And they may not necessarily uh, have a solid understanding of the concept itself, but, you know, they, they feel, uh, they, they feel an interest because it's, it's, it, it's coming from the community or, or mm-hmm. from their tribe. And I know that for me, in my experiences, the, the, the word boundaries is, you know, it's, it's a relatively new term for me. I, I came across it maybe a few years ago and I, you know, when I first came across the word, I had no idea that uh, I could set boundaries or, or that, that that was even an option. You know, it hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me. And so that because that was such a, such a liberating um, new uh, experience, you know, I wanted to integrate it as much as I could to kind of compensate for any areas in my life where I felt that that might have been necessary in the past. And, you know, it's ironic because in this conversation, you've mentioned, you know, um, trying to solve problems in the present using past solutions. So in the present, you know, the it, it's important to look at whether or not something that we've taken on, like the this idea of boundaries, is in fact solving problems in the present, or is it just something that uh, we think might have been useful ten years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I resonate very strongly with what you said about the coming into the awareness that hey, you can set boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people, especially people who have been in traumatic childhoods. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us have come through that, <laughs> um, you know, they, because, okay, so the antidote, right, to that is becoming into more awareness of your sovereignty, mm-hmm. right? And the thing about the way we raise children, we don't raise children to be sovereign. Yeah. So let's process that for a little bit. We don't yeah. raise children to be sovereigns. And there's a couple of reasons why. We don't do that. One is because we want children to to conform enough so that they'll be successful within the community. Mm-hmm. And raising children with too much sense of sovereignty, you risk the possibility that they will not conform. Right. That they will not choose to be a part of the community in ways that's going to be helpful. So we're, in a sense, afraid of their freedoms. Exactly. And, and that's a legitimate fear. That's, that's, that's something to be concerned about, right? Mm-hmm. But we also got to be aware that we may overcompensate in the other direction and suppress sovereignty to the point where kids don't know that they're sovereigns. To me, you know, a five-year-old should be treated like a little king, right? In the sense of being aware that they make choices and that these choices have implications and they should be a, they should be kind of be kind of a handle on what those implications are. They're not going to be good at it because they're just kids, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to need to play a lot and experience a lot and make some mistakes and fall down and bruise their knee and, you know, be hurt in some cases before they'll get it, right? Mm-hmm. So the overprotective parent shields the, the child from every possible harm and in a sense does more damage in that in that way right right the neglectful parent does not do a good job of shielding their kids from harm and does damage that way as well right 
So there has to be this careful interplay between acknowledging the sovereignty of everything that lives, including children, mm-hmm. while protecting them, but giving them enough freedom so they can learn and grow and operate in the world in an empowered way. So knowing that they have the power to create a boundary, to build a wall, but they also have the power to disassemble the wall. Mm-hmm. And that the energy that they put into building that boundary, at some point, there'll have to be energy to take it down. Right. Otherwise, it kind of stays there and it may exist beyond its useful time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. That's, uh, it, it really, it, it's a good reminder that the, the energy that we put into anything we do is energy that, uh, you know, we have invested and we will likely have to, uh, we will likely have to use that same amount of energy to change the thing that we have put in place. So it's important to be, um, uh, clear on what we are doing and yeah. what we are building. Yeah, so so that out of sovereignty, that fact that we're kings, another quote that I've posted in my series, I say, from love, every king becomes a servant. Yeah. So we say, okay, you're a king, you're you know, a little five-year-old, you're a king, but as a king, you really have to serve. And that seems kind of like counterintuitive. You know, I'm the king. Everybody serves me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, if you really read about the rules of power and you understand it, you find that a king always has to serve a constituency of some kind. The mm-hmm. king always has to serve somebody else in the community, right? Or some group. Yeah. No, um, the, a king becomes, the smaller the circle of service, the more dictatorial the king becomes. Mm-hmm. Right? The more disconnected from the community the king becomes right the more unhealthy so the fewer people the king has to serve the more malignant the king becomes mm-hmm. so a loving king wants to serve the whole community so again we see another example is it with trump right he wants to serve the white supremacists and radical and the radical people in the conservative party strictly and we see the kind of malignancy of all that. Whereas, for instance, Biden says, I want to be president for all the people. Right. Right. So the more the king serves, the more people the king dedicates herself to serving, the more benevolent the king becomes. Mm-hmm. And so kids need to realize, hey, you're a king, but the real fulfillment of your kingship comes in your service. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So... This, this is an ancient wisdom, and it actually is encoded within the astrological the zodiac because Leo is a sign of the king, the lion, right? The lion king, right? right? Yeah. But it's immediately followed by Virgo, which is a sign of service. Uh-huh. So the maturation, the movement from the king naturally has to move into the servant, which is Virgo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's very powerful. And it's, I think, you know, these are these things have been moving within the awareness of uh, human consciousness for millennia upon millennia, but we kind of forget. Yeah, we sure do. We sure do. Wow. 
it you know it, that uh, that is such a beautiful way um, to you know at, end our conversation. It's just it, it's such a beautiful. I think that that's poetry. That is poetry. Um, the true kingship uh, lies in its service in in uh, service to others. I mean that is so beautiful. It it, it yeah. really. It, it really warms my heart to, to feel that. And, and um, yeah, it, it just, it brings out peace in me. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I, again, it's, I just love the ancient, you know, again, we need to build our own things for today. But mm. We really have to honor what has gone before too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, thank you so, so, so much. I, it has been such a pleasure. And I, I, you know, I feel like this could go on forever and I could have so many more conversations like these. It's just- Well, we will, <laughs> anytime. <Right>. Okay. <laughs> Invite me back. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I will, I will. All right, Gabriella, thank you so much. I love you. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really, yeah. we need these, we need this in this time. You know, this is so important for us to have these communions, especially now when we're so isolated. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you too. It's been beautiful. I love you and I uh, hope you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode four, our second intuitive session here at Sessions G. Every time I have one of these conversations, I, you know, I'm left with just such a, such a calm that washes over me, such a warm feeling in my heart, um, and such a beautiful sense of uh, connection. It is, it is truly a beautiful thing to connect with people in this way, and to create, you know, to create and hold space for um, these connections to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm feeling so much gratitude. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. And, you know, as always, subscribe, share with your friends. If you've got any feedback, if you want to come on the show and be intuitive and playful with me, you know where to find me. Sessions G is now signing out. Until next time, 